Welcome to SEL Radio, a podcast where we explore the intersections of history, philosophy, culture, and language while combining ethnocide and cultivating Eftopia. My name is Luna, and I'm here with Barrett, the founder and philosopher-in-chief of the Sustainable Culture Lab. Hey, Barrett. Hey, Luna. Thanks for having me. <laughs> um, so this is the last episode we are doing of the American Cycle, but not permanently, just um, kind of an introductory series of the American Cycle. And today we're talking about the most heinous, the most atrocious part of the cycle, which is redemption. Yeah. Yep. Garrett, how, tell us about redemption. It sounds like it's going to be a really great part of the cycle, but yeah. it's actually quite evil. Yeah. And that's exactly that's why it's so heinous um so the era of redemption is the era that happened after the collapse of reconstruction in 1877 and it basically continued until jim crow and so the purpose of redemption this is how it is during reconstruction there was a redeemers movement and they wanted to redeem the south and make the south how it was before Reconstruction. They wanted to return the South to the antebellum era and make it as close to slavery as humanly possible. And the Redeemers during Reconstruction undermined the government of the Reconstruction Union and implemented terror. They created all these militias like the Ku Klux Klan and all that kind of stuff uh, to just, not just to terrorize, but to prevent democracy and equality from having a foothold in the South. And eventually the plan was just to exhaust the United States to let the South get the South back. And in 1877, they got it back when the federal government removed the troops from the South. Like the South was so dangerous that they had to have troops in the South to ensure that democracy could happen. Like just paint that picture, crazy. And so once the troops were removed, the South went about figuring out how they could return to a life as close to prior to the Civil War without doing something that would be clearly unconstitutional because Reconstruction had the Reconstruction Amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. And so they couldn't deny voting rights because of someone's race. You know, they, they couldn't do that anymore. They couldn't legally enslave or own people anymore. So how do you create laws and articulate laws and ideas where you want someone to live as if they are enslaved without them being legally enslaved? Where you want to prevent Black people from voting without saying Black people can't vote. And so the South spent over two decades developing these types of strategies to implement and create Jim Crow. Uh, another big thing that happened during this time is just a complete corruption of language where an era whose agenda is basically to create a dystopian environment, the word that they use for that is redemption. The lost cause of the Confederacy of this narrative where all the Confederate generals became heroes and martyrs that came out of this era. 
the narrative of the Civil War not being over slavery, but over states' rights, that got pushed really heavily in this era. And so it created this whole just completely inverted narrative of existence and reality, which if you aren't aware of this just shift, you can look at the language used in that era and think that it's legit, that there's a legitimacy to it. And it's not intentionally created to obfuscate and oppress people. And so I'm confident that there are Americans today that believe the narrative of states' rights and don't think it has something to do with slavery. And they believe that because the era of redemption like pushed out that propaganda narrative nonstop. And so, you know, there's, you know, Plessy v. Ferguson, the narrative of separate but equal that came out of the era of redemption, where we know that that, that policy, that agenda was to not have it be equal. They just wanted it to be separate. They wanted to create, you know, a, an apartheid state, one that wasn't based on slavery, but whatever means they could. And so the practice run for the era of redemption was the Redeemers movement during Reconstruction, but that also had all these laws like that were called black codes. You know, black codes weren't, they didn't say this is a law to prevent black people from doing something. It'd say this is a law for vagrancy. This is, you know, something and a black person who's just outside is a vagrant. And now you have a law that allows you to just incarcerate black people for any reason. And then you would have, you'd send them to a prison and as a prisoner, they would then be forced to do manual labor. And so, you know, this infrastructure, which was, you could say the foundation for the prison industrial complex that was further grown during Jim Crow came out of the era of redemption where you had to find a way to enslave black people without without technically enslaving them. Incarceration was a way to do that. And Mm -hmm. so the era of redemption is just heinous and we're still combating it to this day. And at a personal level, the work of SCL, the corruption of language, I think, is just the most profound part of this era. If you, if you think before the Civil War, it was just really common for people to say that Black people weren't human beings and that slavery was good. And this mm-hmm. is like the natural order of existence and all that kind of stuff. It was really out there in the open. You just, it's just, it's just there. Like nowadays, we have to like try to not read the published statements of racist in the past to believe that it wasn't racist. Like that's, that's what we have to do. You know, like everyone that was a founding father or whatnot has written something that is just overtly racist and you just, it's just there. There's no need to hide it. Redemption, however, now it's okay. We have to hide this. We have to say something that's not racist but actually means racism. That's the agenda now. Whew, that makes stuff so complicated. This is um, really interesting. You know, like I think the changing the messaging, right? Changing the narrative of what actually happened to paint Confederates as actually the heroes is something I think you're totally right that we are still actively combating and changing. Do you feel like the progressive movement or people who are left-leaning, liberals, whatever you want to call these people um, who are, you know, combating conservatives today and Republicans, 
do you think they're doing enough to change the narrative, to change the messaging, which is so, it just runs so deep, I feel like, because we've internalized these historical lessons as the truth rather than questioning them and understanding that it's like a very much so false narrative to paint ethnociders as good people. You know, like I'm not gonna say, sit here and say that other places aren't doing enough, you know, but I, I, I will say that I don't think America has really come to grips with the scale of how much our language has been corrupted and how words in American English in many ways don't really have like meaning in the way that we think they do. Like American words very much so have a connotation that usurps the denotation. And we are inclined to believe what people say based on what they look far more than like what they're actually saying. And you can see this foundationally in America, just the division between black and white meant that like if a white person said something that our society was conditioned to view that as beneficial. Well, if a black person said the same thing, we're conditioned to view that as not as beneficial, even though the words are the same. Like that's a linguistic division that happens when you have a severe division of people where there's no communal people. Like language is a communal thing. And so if you don't have like a communal society, language gets corrupted because you can't commune with people when you talk. And so like that's a foundational problem to America at just a very profound level. But then you take it to the next level where the people in this structure who we have been like indoctrinated to believe what they say a tad bit more than we should, now they like exploit that to the hilt and don't even attempt to say the truth. Mm -hmm. And we are subtly accustomed to not believe that they're as insidious as they are. <sighs> like that's a massive, massive problem. At SCL, we use the phrase bad faith or mobis foi quite a bit. If you know that someone's going to engage in bad faith, like a you know, you know, not a good faith relationship, a relationship that's not built on trust, you're not going to interact with them. There's just no way you're going to do it. But America knows that the South is bad faith, a hundred percent. Like they know that these people will say that all men are created equal, and then say, "Oh, I don't mean those men." You know, mm -hmm. like that's just inherently bad faith. We can say that America as a society believes that too, you know, foundationally has, but like the crux of that, that hypocrisy and that bad faith comes from the South. It expands because we're encouraged to find common ground and believe in the legitimacy of these actors that all they do is bad faith. And so that problem still exists today. And you can see it with how the Republicans act in Congress now. Like we're still expected to think that, you know, Ted Cruz or someone is a very respectable person because he's a Senator. I'm not saying that he is. I'm just saying like the narrative is like, oh, you know, it'd be, it'd be crazy to kick him out of the Senate. But like, why? Like, I don't, why, you know, like, why is there even a debate? Like he, he 
he clearly was articulating and supporting people harming the government and mm-hmm. his fellow like congressmen. That's not a person that you should think should hold a position in an organization. Like if I work at some organization and they go, Barrett, what do you want to do while you're here? It's like, I want to get people that don't work here to come in and like smash up the building and terrorize my coworkers. And the response shouldn't be like, interesting, Barrett, interesting. You know, let's let's discuss that (laughs) further while you still work here. You know, like, no, (laughs) this makes sense. Yeah. So I think when you're trying to have a battle over language and you focused a lot of your time on the severity of like the corruption of language, then you're not going to win. And, you know, like the Republicans, their agenda is clearly just obfuscation. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. how are you going to try to find a good faith relationship and common ground with people who clearly engage in bad faith and obfuscation all the time? Like that's, that just doesn't make any sense. And believing that it does make sense is just absurd. So you would say then, okay, let's, this is how my mind works. Mm-hmm. I like to categorize things. Right. So if we were to categorize each phase of the American cycle, you know, founding, abolition, reconstruction, redemption, would you say founding conducted more bad policies? And it's not like these were like, these policies made no sense, but also were like immoral and unethical. Mm-hmm. Would you... Yeah. So like, let's kind of go over like each phase of the American cycle and let's categorize as either more of a like doing of policy or like a doing of language. The founding era is clearly a policy one. That's, that's all mm-hmm. policy. You know, they made the government, they had to, they had to create the policies for the thing to exist. And so that's, that's documentation and laws. And you can see with the first founding era, like they just documented, like these people aren't people, you know, that's how we're, that's how we're doing it. And so that's clearly a policy proposal. Um, abolition is one where like, we need to abolish these policies, you know? Um, uh, reconstruction is we need to make brand new policies. Redemption is we are doing nonstop propaganda to make it so that people don't think that these policies are bad so that we can do the policies that we already know people don't like. If we can do enough propaganda for people to think that what they know is bad is actually good because we've corrupted language so much, we can then get back to doing the thing that we want to do that we know that nobody wants us to do. Just nonstop propaganda. So you're you're telling me you have four phases of the American cycle. Uh-huh. Three of which are focused on policy, and one is focused on changing the narrative and messaging. Like not even like changing, but like like just lying and creating like this very false narrative, a false fantasy of ethnocider language and a, and a narrative that matches the ethnocider. So, like, yeah, you could say that. I guess the key thing is since we focus on culture and language, is that the thing that underpins the policies are culture and language. So the purpose of 
the redemption era was to perpetuate propaganda so that they could make the policies because they're trying to do it through the government. You know, like there is a need for this to stick to seem legitimate. And if you can get enough people to come together and pass a bill and make a policy, and it's like, this is the law. So the end goal is to create policies in many ways. It's just that the culture that precedes the policy is a thing that you need to correct because the culture makes the policy. So, you know, there is an ethnocidal culture in the founding era, and they made all these just racist policies that included slavery. (laughs) Then there is a culture of saying, I don't want to be the ethnocide. Like, that's not good. So let's abolish these policies. Now it's, okay, now in Reconstruction, we're making a culture that's not ethnocidal. So now this culture, you know, we, we, we have to have like a governmental structure. We have to have laws. We have to have arguments to articulate the benefit of these laws because, you know, when you do something at scale, you have to create these types of institutions. That's just like a natural thing. And America's huge. So we have to have them. And so then you create new policies. The redemption era was about making policies, but it was about propagating a narrative that could then allow people to make policies that they know the opposition would not approve of if they used the existing language. So they had to make new language and new concepts to get people to like willfully think that like oppression is good again, you know? You have written before that the lost cause, like another phrase for the lost cause would be make the South great again which is directly like like Donald Trump pretty much just mimicked and copied. Right. Do you like, I mean, I think a lot of people question like how did a monster, how did a gremlin like Donald Trump crawl out and make it into the presidency? I think a lot of people question that, but I think like this conversation is really shifting how I'm thinking about that in terms of the redemption movement, really crafting a heinous narrative and allowing for policies to take place that kind of helped reinstitute the founding stage of the American cycle in addition to like America's bad faith. Yeah. So like Donald Trump is a monster because he's bad at obfuscating. Like... (laughs) No one can see, but I'm nodding. (laughs) Like That's the thing. Like Republicans still support him up until the point where he does something that then makes them look bad. Not that he did something that they disagree with, but something that they say, I, this is, this crosses the line. This is embarrassing. It's hard for me to defend him when he says things like this. They're not saying that it's hard for them to defend him because of what he believes. They're saying it's hard to defend him because of what he says and how he acts. So what they want you to do is act and say stuff as if you're a dignified, respectable person while you do vulgar, you know, (laughs) vulgar things all the time. 
And so that's why Donald Trump's a monster. And you can see the thing that's frightening about the US and this era of redemption is like Donald Trump clearly isn't a student of history. He didn't sit down and do a bunch of research and look at reconstruction and say, ah, oh, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna dismantle reconstruction. I'm gonna make my own redemption. I'm inspired by the redeemers. How can I make my own name that's like echoes the redeemers? But you know, no, he didn't do any of that. He just organically came up with a name that he felt would resonate with his group of Americans. So like this, this ethnocidal like uh, vein of our society is just a cultural current that people tap into. And it's really easy to get sucked in because it doesn't even use offensive language. And that's because of the air of redemption. Like you can believe just so many abhorrent, repugnant things and not know it because we call them like lollipops and candy canes. <laughs> it's very Orwellian in, in, the, in the, the strictest sense. You know, it's the equivalent of two plus two equals five and, and you know, freedom equals slavery, stuff like that. It's the same stuff. We just don't know as a society that we've been force fed the idea that freedom is slavery. You know, black people been like, nah, slavery is not freedom. I'm letting you know this. And the rebuttal's like, but I'm pretty sure these politicians in the, in the late 1800s told me that it was. And I believe them because it sounds nice. Separate but equal. Yeah, that doesn't sound nice now. But back then it was like, you know, it didn't sound bad, exactly. but it didn't sound good. <laughs> it didn't sound bad, but the agenda for that was to create Jim Crow. Like once you could have separate but equal, perfect. Jim Crow, bam, apartheid state, doing it. That's how it is. And that's what America did. So like, that's how dangerous it is where a society that says they don't like slavery and also that we should focus on how the fact that we just call it Jim Crow like that doesn't sound like a very troublesome name you know Jim Crow well okay it's just like that sounds like a guy yeah yeah just some some arbitrary term I don't even know what it means you know like you you make these horrible things appear really palatable and banal and just normal and then people can read about or hear about something that's just an atrocity and say, I'm, I'm not sure if it's that bad. Like, come on now. <laughs> and that this capacity came out of redemption. And if you look throughout the South, you can see all of the Confederate monuments and stuff that are all littered across the country. Like all of that came out of redemption. And, you know, clearly a lot of those are built during Jim Crow, but an alarming number of them were built around the 1960s as once black people were able to get more rights, all these white people whose ancestors were, you know, redeemers and working in redemption and were all about Jim Crow, they said, we got to remind black people that they're in their place. And so we're going to erect monuments for Confederates all like in their towns. And mm -hmm. like, people think that these all of the statues are from, you know, 100 years ago. No, a lot of them are from the 60s and the 50s. So this past week was International Holocaust Memorial Day, or it was a day of remembrance, basically, international. Totally. Mm -hmm. um, 
And you write about how Germany has instituted like a culture of remembrance. Like you see it throughout the German people. Like they do not want to forget that the Holocaust happened. They want to own up to it. That's a form of accountability. But you see here how the U.S. has, <laughs> instead of taking down these like these statues and these imagery of violence, it's like in an outpouring of like love and support for these violent images, which yeah. is why I think, you know, when you were talking about how we need culture and policy to work together, you know, I don't think a lot of people know that. And I think it, for a lot of Americans and ethnociders in America, like the culture part for, for them is so hard because they are working actively to kill culture, to kill progressive, like good, well-intentioned, good impact culture. Well, see, the, th the thing is, is like, we live in an ethnocidal society. We're all encouraged to have a decultured existence. Like innately, we all want culture and stuff because we, uh, that's just a thing you need. You need that communal attachment. You need art, you need music, you need stuff that like gives you a purpose, but America doesn't incentivize you to have those things. Those are things that you get when you have like enough money and you can have like spare time. But if you don't have that, you're just encouraged to work here and make money. And then you should, you're encouraged to use that money to buy private property that you can own as an individual. And then you can like live by yourself in your own mini, well, you know, like heaven on earth or something. And so this is a completely decultured way of trying to live in the world. So when you have a conversation with Americans about culture, it's often just like a foreign concept because we haven't been incentivized to cultivate and create culture, whether you're intentionally trying to destroy it or not, there's just not, an awareness that that's a thing that you need. Like we're indoctrinated to believe that you need money first and then you can get the other things. Then you can get culture after you get the money that you can then use to buy culture. It's like, that just, that doesn't work. And so, so yeah, that's partially why America always looks for policy solutions. There's solutions through the government or solutions through business. It's always a solution that emanates from some like entity that's already created some system, but not from a collection of people. Because America was not built to be a collection of people. It was a bifurcated group of people. And the era of redemption is the one that helped ensure that we went back to being divided. And, you know, that's just, that's how it is. It's pretty bleak, but like the era of redemption makes it really clear how dystopian and Orwellian it is where if you legitimize a whole group of people whose agenda is to convince everything that bad stuff is good and you, you call it good, you know, like you're not saying I'm doing a bad thing and I believe the bad thing is good. It's like, no, no, no. They believe it's, a, you know, what they're doing, if we knew they were doing it, we would call it bad. They're calling it good. And they're finding a way for us to think that what they're doing is actually good. So like, our notion of what good is, is what the rest of like civilization would define as bad. So like we would wake up every day to do good things when we're actually do bad things the whole time. Like, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like that's what the era of redemption does. Yeah, that's a huge cognitive dissonance. Yeah. That's huge. 
It's the whole society. That's why the, these Trump people, they're really, they are really, really convinced that they were doing something good. And there's they a still lot, are. 100%. Like they, they really think that going around and implementing terror as a response of not getting what they wanted is a good thing, that it is an expression of their freedom and that they are defending freedom. And it makes sense to parade flags celebrating the Confederacy in the US Capitol building while you're celebrating freedom because they've, so many of them have grown up with a narrative that these Confederate people are actually heroes who mm -hmm. have been maligned and slandered throughout history. And when, you've been, when you indoctrinate people with propaganda for well over a hundred years and you tell them that you know north is south and up is down, when reality hits them in the face, they're not gonna know what to do. And that's basically what's happening. Like the reality is that people who don't look like white people are still human beings and they're allowed to participate in society. It's just they, their brain goes, things are being stolen from me. And the era of redemption, you know, cultivated that foundation for this like, you know, dystopian discourse. Let's go back to corrupted language, basically. Right. Can you spit fire <laughs> words, phrases that are actually bad, but we, it doesn't sound bad? You named Jim Crow. Oh, Jim Crow. Oh, 100%. But it's, it's more complicated than that because there are plenty of phrases that when you say them and think about them, they are bad. We just have been taught that they're not bad. And so many times they're just casual things. You know, two birds and one stone, silver bullet. When you do something really good, you say, I'm cr I crushed it. You know, like the pervasiveness isn't just in these things that are like clearly political. It's so many other things. I think a fascinating one is the, is the phrase dog whistle. Because like dog whistle is bad, 100%. But it seems like, oh, it's just like a casual, it's dog whistle, you know, like it seems like it, mm -hmm. it's meaningless. Yet at the same time, only dogs can hear the whistle. So like Republicans came up with a term for them talking to their base that implies that their base are dogs. And like, we don't even catch that. Like, the people that run the Republican Party are literally saying we're covering up our racist campaign ads and we're calling them something that's not racist so that we can appeal to white voters and we're gonna call it dog whistles because the white people will be able to hear what we're saying and progressives won't. Mm -hmm. So that like two plus two equals four, like that, that means that these Republicans are saying that their base are dogs. Mm -hmm. And we just like, no one puts that together. No one says that's kind of crazy. Like who, why would that be appropriate? I think a great example is just like the names of our political parties because the Republican party was created as the abolitionist party and the Democratic party was created by Andrew Jackson as call it the populist party but it was a populist party for white people to like enslave and terrorize non-white people. So the Democrats was started out as just like a, an overtly racist party and the Republicans are the ones that were trying to abolish uh, slavery. So mm -hmm. they, they had this clear ideology, but 
But then you get around to Jim Crow. And now that like black people are just back to being oppressed again and they don't participate in society, the, the narrative of abolition or whatever just didn't matter anymore. And you didn't have to be an overtly racist party anymore because people were already like systematically kept out of the system. So, you know, next, you know, like the Republicans became like the business one and the Democrats became, you know, more of a, the union and stuff like that. But like, you could go back and forth as a white voter. You didn't need to really be a Democrat or Republican. You could go either way. It's like tossing a coin, either one you win. And so then we wake up in the sixties and all the Democrats in the South are racist like Andrew Jackson, <laughs> mm-hmm. and they just say, we're going to leave and join the Republican Party. And the Republicans say, we're just going to accept all these racists, and we don't feel any need to change our name. Like, the identity of the parties changed completely. Not even the same anymore. The name is still the same. So, like, there's no denotation. <laughs> the denotation's irrelevant. It's just the connotation. And the connotation that they that they gave is we're like a perfectly respectable party, even though we just opened the doors to these unabashedly racist people. But that doesn't mean that we're a racist party. We're just a party that's like a coalition of racists and people <laughs> who like like racist, but we're not racist. <laughs> actually, we're actually the party of Abraham Lincoln that is the abolitionist party. What? Like that doesn't make any sense. Like <laughs> Yeah. So it's not that words are good, like good or bad. It's that they don't have a real meaning. Yeah. You know, like you saying that now that there was basically no name change, bad like foresight on the Dem party, on both parties, to be honest. Yeah, 100%. Because <laughs> it's just like they didn't really matter. It was just like a party of white people. Like the Democrats yeah. are in a peculiar position because now the Democratic Party is actually acting democratic. And so it'll be strange for them to change their name from being democratic when they are trying to do democracy. But like Mm -hmm. the Democratic Party is the one that's trying to do democracy, but historically they were created to not do it at all, which speaks to like the corruption of language from a foundational level. Wow. They talk about the Democratic Party with Andrew Jackson as being a populist party, but like that populist party is a populist that's exclusively of white Southern people and doesn't include any of the black people that lived in the South. Like that's clearly not a populist party. And if you look at uh, like, there's this great article by um, Uberto Eco called like Ur fascism, which is like eternal fascism. And he talks about that fascist regimes will have a narrative of being like a populist party, but that populist only represents a select few of a select few, you know, like it's actually not a populist party, but people need to believe that it's like the voice of the people when it's just, you know, the voice of this group of people that are trying to terrorize other people and say other people aren't humans. So like <laughs> you have one that if you use the, the framework of European fascism from the early 20th century, it was founded off of that principle. They're the ones trying to do democracy right now. The ones that are founded off of abolishing slavery, they're the ones trying to implement the second era of redemption. Wow. I mean, and I mean, that goes to what you said last episode too. Like America is very ahistorical and we choose 
a lot of folks choose to ignore or believe or narrate a very false history of what America is. Like I just think about the many calls that people were making about during the insurrection attack on January 6th, like a lot of people were saying, this is not America, but it's like, what kind of America are you living in? Yeah, no, <laughs> This I, is very much so America. <laughs> I did a chat earlier today and I was like, reconstruction. Like these people were attempting coups at the state level. Their ideology was if they don't win fairly, then they're gonna resort to terror to try to overthrow the government and then claim that they are like the legitimate winner. America did that all the time through reconstruction. They're just doing it now, stuff that, that we used to do at a state level, they're just trying it at a national level now, in addition to trying it at a state level, you know? Last year, some people in Michigan tried to kidnap the governor because they didn't want to wear COVID masks. So it's just the thing that we've always done. We just, mm -hmm. and it circles back to before the narrative where you have like a divided society where if one group is supposed to be on the top all the time and one's supposed to be on the bottom, our society conditions people to view the people on the top as being good and correct, even when they're not. And so we condone, you know, white terror more than we should because our society is created to just condone white actions way more than they should because that allows them to like stay in charge. And as you know, that's like the master and slave dialectic where, you know, yeah. one, one group has power and no responsibility and one group has no power and all the responsibility. Mm -hmm. white America tries to function as the ones who have power and no responsibility so they can go implement terror and then believe that they're not going to get like punished for it because they had good intention or something you know yeah last question then you just kind of want to summarize redemption in one sentence Barrett redemption is a propaganda campaign based on disguising ethnocidal terror and oppression as something that's palatable and equitable and progressive. Boom. There we go. Perfect. Thanks so much, Barrett. Thanks. So let's wrap it up. Um, you know, the listener, follow us on all social media platforms at scl.community. Don't forget to subscribe to SCL's newsletter, The Word, for a weekly dose of something liberating at the top of your week. We'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>